to share a bunch of my hopes, mixed emotions before getting into the text. What I'm going to share over the next four sermons in this sermon series are the most important lessons I've ever learned as a Christian. You'll hear me often talk about, you know, top five or top ten principles that have impacted me. This is the number one. And when I very first learned this these things I'm going to be teaching you over the next four weeks. I was about 26, 27 years old. And um, it really, the, the truth is it made me mad. It made me mad that I had spent six years as a Christian defeated. And that I had lived in so much condemnation that I had mistaken for conviction. But what really made it worse was when I discovered that what I was trying to do as a Christian, God had never told me to do. That's what really bothered me. I was frustrated that nobody ever come alongside me and taught me these things. I was somewhat dumbfounded. How could I be in church for six years? Nobody teach me these things. I was also really ashamed, is probably not the right word for it, but uh, shocked that what I'm going to show you is everywhere. It wasn't some obscure passage, but that it was everywhere, in every book, nearly in every chapter, over and over and over and over and over and over again, and that God had been, had been saying these things, if you will, over and over and over again. And I realized how slow we are to just take God at His word. There's a part of me that's nervous about the next four weeks because when I introduce it like I did and when we look at last week's sermon, there's this great expectation that you're going to hear something that finally after all these years you've never heard. That's not the case. In fact, you guys will be, those of you that are saved and have ever tried to, you know, talk to anybody about salvation, this will resonate with you. You know that salvation is actually so simple that most people just have a hard time believing it. And it's like we wish we had some great profound way to explain how we're saved, but we, we talk about you've just got to turn and put your faith in Jesus. It's like, well, that's just too easy. You know, so instead, I, go ahead and tell me the truth now. That's a, that's a real easy, nice way to say it, but it can't be that easy. But it is. The way to spiritual victory is equally the same. It is not profound. It is not hard. And so what, what I am concerned with is that when I teach what I'm going to teach over the next four weeks, you will do the same thing you've done most of your life as a Christian and think, well, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know. 
I know. Then why do you still live in such condemnation all the time if you know? Then why aren't you walking in spiritual victory if you know? Maybe you don't know like you think you do know. And so I want to challenge you to take what we're going to learn and meditate meditate on it in the weeks to come as we go through these things. I'm, I'm going to encourage you to go back to the scriptures and read them throughout the week and pray for God to help you get it from here. It needs to be in here first, and then it needs to sink deep into the soul to a place where it's unshakable and you know that this is how it works. The next thing I want to say before getting to our text is that this next section of this sermon series has three parts. And I'm going to deal with part one today. I will deal with part two and part three together. And then part four separately. And I want you to understand the progression. The first thing we're going to deal with today is getting over what we've done. Because that is a problem. What we've done. And then in the next part, we're going to get over the monster inside that makes me do what I do. And that piece, the monster inside that makes me do what I do, is going to be the probably most important part for most of you here in understanding what in the world is happening in this double heart of mine. And then the final piece is presenting ourselves to God to be used. That's the ultimate goal. And when we talk about entering the spiritual battlefield and making a difference for the kingdom of God, so many of us really cut ourselves out because we don't feel worthy. We don't feel like God could actually use me. We say cute statements like, well, God can use anybody, and I know God's grace can cover it. But deep inside, there's a part where we just feel like, I'm so unworthy, I'm so, such a fool, I continue to trip over the same old things, and God just couldn't use somebody like me. And so we're really hesitant to go very far with God because we feel like we're not getting very far in the first place with ourselves. And so this series has a progression to it. And getting to that place where we feel like we can present ourselves to God, it requires the first two steps of what we're about to go through. Step one today, and then step two is coming. And you have to know the progression. There is a reason for the way that we're going through this. And here's my final concern. The teaching is pretty boring. So if you showed up hoping for a really dynamic message like last week where you leave like, wow, I'm ready to get to war, you're going to be really disappointed. The Bible says Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees and he said to them that they err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. The path, brothers and sisters, is knowing what God has said. And yes, we'll enter the battlefield. And yes, that's a wonderful place to live as a Christian. But there are some things we just need to stop and learn. It's like school, if you will. And school's not fun. 
But as I told you and I promised you last week, if you will take and learn these principles that we are about to uh, examine, it will absolutely revolutionize your Christian life. And so let's get started. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. It will be our only text this morning. I'll ask that you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of, the glo- of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail." These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let us pray. God, this morning we come to your holy word. And God, we've come to a statement in your word that is about as full and rich as any 14 verses will ever be. God, we pray that you would give us understanding this morning. God, we confess that we are our people, that we are distracted. God, that in a 20 minutes of worship, sometimes our minds are going everywhere else and just thinking about what's going to happen later. Help us, God, to just focus on you this morning and on your word. God, give us an expectant heart that you want to speak to us. 
that you love your children and you desire to speak to us. You want to strengthen us. You want to help us. You want to teach us. And so may our, our heart and our soul and our spirit be on peak right now. May we be alert. May we be ready to receive from you. And I pray that you would anoint me, God, to rightly divide the word of truth, help me to preach it clearly in a way that is unmistakable, that we can take it and apply it to our lives and live by faith in Jesus. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that is not truly saved, that today would be that day that they put their faith in Jesus and follow him. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Those 14 verses say a lot. I want to draw your attention to the, the, the primary point. So we, the, the primary point is in verse 8, and it finishes up in verse 14. You don't have to pull it up on the screen, but I'm just, I want to read it to you because we read it together, that these sacrifices and offers that were offered they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And then it says in verse 14 that Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is ultimately about the conscience. It is about that inner voice, that inner conscience of, am I worthy or not? Does God love me or not? Am I righteous or not? Can I present myself to God to be used or not? Is God pleased with me or not? And there is a conscience. Now, God gave us the conscience. What is the conscience? It is that part of our nature that speaks to us on what is right and what is wrong. And while God created humans with a conscience, don't mistake the conscience with the Holy Spirit. Your conscience can get it wrong sometimes, and what we're going to find out is that even concerning spiritual things, your conscience gets us wrong a lot. You live with your head down and shame and defeat when your conscience is just totally mistaken and wrong, and you ought to have your head up towards Jesus with a sense of great victory because of what he's done. That said, that while the conscience can get it wrong, the conscience is not necessarily a bad thing. But if you don't get your conscience right, if you don't get your heart right, you're going to find you just live in spiritual defeat all of your life. And so I want us to look at the, the areas that our consciences are offended concerning God. If you might remember last week, I said concerning this battle with the enemy that we need to understand why he attacks us the way he does. And that when you understand why he attacks us the way he does, it becomes easier to see and understand the way to overcome the enemy's attacks. Why does the enemy go after our conscience the way he does? And as I've already told you, this is going to be a lot more simple than you think. You know, our desire as a Christian is to be right with God. That's it. 
That's the goal. Right? When you're feeling guilty, when you're feeling ashamed, when you're feeling distanced, there's a part of you that somewhere inside of you, you are convinced God is angry with you. Because you blew it. You can never get it right. You're always doing the same old thing over and over and over again. If everybody in here knew your struggles, you would be deeply ashamed. There you go. Ten seconds. That's all that took. So the devil's the accuser of the brethren. And here's what he knows. Our ultimate desire as Christians is to please God. That's it. That's pretty simple. But you will see that our conscience, it convinces us we're not right with God. God's upset. And if I'm right today, here's the terrifying horror. I might not be right tomorrow. And so I'm going to live in defeat now about how I know that I might fail tomorrow. And there's this sense of I can never get it right. I can never be holy enough. I can never serve God perfect enough. I'm constantly going to fail. I know that I am. And so I'm just waiting for the next time that I make God angry. This is the way most of us as Christians live our Christian life. And we want free. I'm telling you, the only way we can be free is learning how to overcome this lying conscience. It's to get our thinking right. It's the battle of the mind. And there are three primary areas that our conscience accuses us before God. Number one, we're going to deal with it this morning, and that's our sins. That's the things that we've done. How do I get over what I've done? And next is the discovery of the flesh nature. It's the most horrifying, terrible discovery we all make as a Christian. We get saved, and we're like, yes, God is good. And I want to serve him, and I want to live for him, and I want to honor him, and I hate sin, and I I never want to do those bad things again. And then temptation comes. Somebody does you wrong, and immediately anger comes up in the heart, and you want to see him pay. Then you start thinking, what is wrong with me? And we are awakened to the reality of the monster inside that causes me to sin in the first place. And our conscience accuses us. That's what's coming next. And then the Final piece being, I know that I'm supposed to serve God. I know that God's created me for good works. I know the Bible tells me I've got a role in the body of Christ. I know I'm supposed to be actively involved in taking the gospel all places, but I don't feel worthy of serving God. And so there's this this internal part of us where we constantly feel like I really can't. I know I should, And then we're really condemned because we know God's told us to, and now we're arguing with God, and we're not going to serve, and we're not going to use our gifts and our talents, and we're trying to justify it by shaming ourselves because we're convinced we're still bad people who still sin too much, who can't get rid of that monster inside. There's no way God could use me. This is the war inside, brothers and sisters. And I lived it for seven years in complete defeat. Today, we're going to deal with part one 
How do we overcome the things we have done, our sins? We're going to identify the way of overcoming what we've done. Number one, I just want you to notice and identify and got to understand the way this works, the way of overcoming what we have done. You have to learn and accept that our sins leave us guilty before God. Again, elementary. But our sins, that, what we've, that which we have done, it leaves us guilty before God. This is where guilt comes from. And the reality is that we know it. Even sinners know it. There is a consciousness of when we have done wrong. We know it. And so this is the goal of sins. It's to bring us to a place of feeling guilty before God. And I need to understand that my enemy is going to use that every time that I commit sins. And often, even when I look back at the things I have done in the past, and I start to think about how they've hurt people and how they hurt me and how I can't fix it and how my actions had consequences that are still ongoing. And now all of a sudden, what I've done, the sins I've committed, I'm feeling guilty for. It is true that even the sinner knows what I just said to be fact. But I want us to examine the Christian. Because as Christians, we still get to feeling that way. And while I'm not advocating sin, and I'm not trying to teach there are no consequences... If we'll be honest with ourselves, as Christians, when we cave in, when we give in to temptation, when we sin, would you agree immediately what follows is shame and defeat and a sense of what is wrong with me? That's what happens. And so we have got to understand in this good fight that we're fighting, what is the way to overcoming sins? Number two, we learn from our text that atonement requires the shedding of blood. You want to overcome sins. The bad news is that sins are so serious, they require the shedding of blood. This is why you'll stay, honestly, in defeat forever and ever is if you think that somehow you could get good enough to pay off your sins. Because even instinctively, you know you can't. You know that being good today and showing up to church like a good little Christian and singing the songs and praying some prayers, you know it doesn't fix what you did yesterday. And you know it. And there's still the sense of guilt. What we need is atonement. I need to know that what I've done has been completely and totally and fully eradicated. It's done with. It's been atoned for. It's been paid for. Atonement's a significant word because it's the opposite of sweeping something under the carpet. No, it is complete payment in full. And honestly, you could almost argue that atonement, it's not just complete payment in full, but we're going to take it to the next level. You stole $10, we're going to pay back 100 to make this right. And so, no, I'm not just covering what I've done. 
I'm going to overdo it. We are going to atone for this thing so that there is no confusion that whatever was made wrong has been made right. Atonement requires the shedding of blood. It's what our text tells us. In fact, when you go down, you don't have to pull it up, but when you go down to verse 22 in this same chapter, so the same chapter expands a little bit more, and so does chapter 10. It expands on this concept. I just wasn't going to make you stand for two full chapters of Scripture reading. But in verse 22, this is where we get the statement, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So I've got to understand the way that my sins are dealt with, and the answer is this, it's through the shedding of blood. Now, we read the text, right? And the text tells us that the concerning the forgiveness of sins that the high priest entered only once. And it says that he sprinkled blood for himself and for the people. And then it goes on and says, and this just once a year. So, you got to understand, and it helps a lot to understand some things in the Old Testament, the way it worked, so we can see why Jesus fulfills that. But God said, I'm going to make a way for your sins to be atoned for once a year. And the way is this. Inside the Holy of Holies, there is a, this is where the mercy seat will be. This is where the manifest presence of God will dwell for a period of time on earth. And so long as that is the place that God dwells, he said, once a year, the high priest is going to come before me and going to offer the atonement for everybody's sins, and I will forgive everything. From that moment, it's forgiven. But as you continue to read, the author points out, they had to do this every year. So the blood was sufficient. Of, uh, uh, God allowed the blood of a, a, a sacrificed bowl to cover the sins and of a lamb and they would take one lamb and send it off into there was some there were some things they did on this day that were all highly symbolic of how God views our sins but the point is this that it just happened once a year but it couldn't cleanse the conscience that's what our text told us you know the awful thing about the Day of Atonement? Is that on one hand, I know that God has forgiven everything I did last year. The bad news is, is that tomorrow's coming. That's the bad news. And so, I'm going to be guilty again tomorrow, and it's just every year this thing happens over and over again, where at least I'm grateful that God has a path to deal with all the bad things I've done, but the reality is it's ongoing. I, there, obviously, whatever's happening here is not sufficient enough to completely and totally eradicate me of these things. And so every year, we have the Day of Atonement, and then the next day comes. You know, one of the things that used to bug me so much was the realization that I sinned every day. 
first couple of years as a Christian, I wasn't nearly as conscious of that. You know, for me, because I wasn't doing the major sins, I'd stopped them. So I was no longer sinning. And then I read a passage of scripture that absolutely rocked my world. You know what it was? It was when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. I can't tell you how it came to me sitting there reading it that day, but it did, and I've never changed my mind on it. What is the breaking of the law? It's the breaking of God's commandments. So what's the greatest breaking of law? What's the greatest sin there could possibly be? It has to be the breaking of the greatest commandment. How could any lesser commandment be a greater sin than breaking the greatest of them all? And I realized that every day, whether I wanted to or not, realized we needed, if, did, you, did you catch that word, unintentional sins? We need forgiveness even for unintentional sins. And I realized that every day I was guilty of not loving God with all my heart, all my strength, all my soul, all my mind. Even if I was, let's just say, let's just say, I'm making this up here, but let's just say I were able to do it for five minutes. Great. Well, what if I did it for a whole hour? There's 23 others. I mean, I just knew that I knew that I knew that every day of my life, at some point during that day, whether it's all day or at some point during the day, I'm committing the greatest crime against God there is, and I am guilty of sins all the time. And I'm telling you, as this guy who grew up in a church that teaches you could lose your salvation, all of a sudden I got pretty confused. I'm like, well, if I'm sinning every day, then how am I saved? I've got to figure this out. That's why this piece here that we're studying concerning atonement is utterly important. In order for there to be atonement, there must be the shedding of blood. And God gave us a picture of that in the Old Testament. He, he showed us that the path to overcoming our sins is not bringing mankind to a place where he never sins, but instead providing atonement for when he does sin. I want you to hear that again. God's path for overcoming sins is not bringing us to a place where we never sin. That's happening in heaven. It's never going to happen on earth. His path instead is providing atonement, complete and full atonement for sins. Now, I'm going to make a statement that's going to apply to the next several weeks. You're going to hear me say it a handful of times. It does not matter what you think. It matters what God thinks. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what God thinks. Remember... Our conscience is being pricked because we want to be right with God. That's what we want to be. So it doesn't matter how I think I should be right with God, does it? What matters is what God says needs to happen in order for me to be right with him. That's what matters. I'm not God. I don't get to make the laws. I don't get to make the way. I don't get to make the path. He's God. 
And when I remember that, I can begin to be at peace by trusting what he says about how I'm right with him. So let's look at, finally, the way the way that God deals with our sins. Number three, the blood of Jesus is God's provision for our atonement. The blood of Jesus is God's provision for our atonement. So in our text, here's what it basically says in quick modern-day English. The old way didn't work. It was never meant to work. It didn't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper, but Jesus came as the final high priest. He is the great and final and only high priest who will ever be needed again. And he entered into the presence of God. He entered into the heavenly tabernacle, not with the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. He entered in with his blood. And because he entered in with His blood, it is once and finally and forever done to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper concerning our sins, the things we've done. In the tabernacle, I want you to get the picture. In the tabernacle, the the old tabernacle or Solomon's temple, they were... um, built similar, but the concept was the same where there was this area where a lot of work took place called the holy place, and then there was the most holy place or the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies, you couldn't see what was in there. You couldn't get in there. There was this huge veil that you had to go around to get to it, and it was symbolic. It was symbolic, hear me now, that the way to God had not been opened to man. That was what it was pretty simple. I'm telling you, it's not mind blowing, but you've got to know the scriptures and you have to understand the way. You've got to know. The way to God was cut off. And the only way anybody could get there was once a year with blood to come in as an atonement. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, that there was a moment when he was hanging there. Before he breathed his last, when he cries out, there was a moment when the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. It was God who put his hands on the veil and tore this nearly eight inch thick veil from the top to the bottom, telling us that now the way to God has been opened for the world. For all of us, we can now go to God because of the blood of Jesus. I can approach God and you can approach God because of the blood of Jesus. It is God's provision for the atonement for our sins. Now, I've got to wrap this up, and so what I'm going to do is try to, I'm just going to give it to you the way that it works in my mind and my heart. You have got to get this simple truth, or you will live your life in condemnation for the things you've done. I hate sinning just as much as the next man. I want you to listen to me carefully. I hate sin. I hate it in my own life. 
I hate it in the life of others. I hate what it does to this world. I hate sin. It is wrong. It is evil. It is destructive. It is harmful. But I have learned not to allow my hatred for sin to cause me to want to run and hide under a cave when it does happen in my life. I'm going to tell you why. Because doing so is to trample on the blood of Jesus. It was hard for me for someone that came from a place where you're, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. You're terrible, you're terrible, you're terrible. It was hard for me to get to a place to allow myself to really feel like I can come before God boldly knowing I just blew it yesterday. I'm going to say it again. I had to get what I'm trying to tell you. It does not matter how I feel. And it does not matter what I believe. What matters is what God says and what God believes. And God said the way that Joplin can come before him is through the atoning blood of Jesus. And guess what? That doesn't change. And so the way that what I've done is dealt with is through the blood of Jesus. And to live in condemnation for what I've done is to refuse to accept what God says about the blood of Jesus. It's not being extra holy or spiritual, which I used to think it was. It's not. It's actually wicked pride is what it is. I also saw, talking about this wicked pride, I saw how wicked it was of me all those years. I approached God with a sense of great boldness because Joplin had a good, powerful week. What an absolute horrendous trampling on the blood of Jesus to think that I could approach God because I read my Bible? Because I didn't miss church this week? How ugly and arrogant and prideful. And here's the irony of it all. I pray the Holy Spirit will help you see it like he helped me see it. The irony of it all, approaching God that way was sin. And yet he let me approach him. Why? Because of the atonement of the blood. Because God sees his sons and daughters as, and I'm going to introduce this term, in Christ. That's what it's all about. In Christ. In Christ, God sees me as my sins dealt with through the blood. And I'm going to tell you, when I saw what I saw, it didn't make me want to go out and sin. Such a sense of appreciation that his plan was so full, it's so complete, that he knew even after I was saved, I would repent and I would hate sin and I wouldn't want to do it anymore, but I wouldn't be able to do it perfectly and I still would fall and I would still sin at times. And God said, I already had that figured out. Like, this is not news to me, son. And you've been approaching me boldly, not because you haven't been sinning, not because you're some perfect holy man, but because the blood of my son that was shed on Calvary's cross, it is sufficient for you. This is the way we overcome our sins, brothers and sisters. And I want to close with this simple statement. It is the only way. There is no other way. 
You can waste the rest of your life if you want trying to tip the scales, trying to atone for yourself, trying to punish yourself every time you sin. It won't work. There's only one way that you will ever come before God with a clean conscience. And that is when you quit looking away from yourself or you start looking away from yourself. Quit looking at all that you've done wrong. Quit looking at your inability. Quit looking at what you've done and look to Jesus. And you get your eyes on him and you remember that his blood is sufficient to cleanse you of all of your sins. That God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Just confess them. Can I tell you an embarrassing truth? It's embarrassing on one hand just because we're people. It's not embarrassing because I know that all of you fall in the same category, but I'm going to tell you something. There have been times where I have sinned as a pastor, and I knew that I needed to get up and have confidence to preach the Word of God. And I've knelt there in my office, and I've walked through the process that I'm teaching you guys right now, and that I will continue to teach over the next several weeks. But concerning this one piece, I just thank God for the blood. I wish I hadn't sinned. Don't you? Don't you wish you didn't have to have the atonement? I do too. But here's the reality. We do. Get over it. Get over yourself. You are a fallen being and you will never be perfect until you get to heaven. Get over yourself. And get a sense of gratefulness for the majesty of the cross and the power of the blood. And when you need to, you hit your knees and you say, God, thank you that the blood of Jesus cleanses me. And I have a sense of confidence I can get up this morning and preach the word of God as a person that is holy in your sight, cleansed in your sight, totally and utterly forgiven in your sight because the blood of Jesus is sufficient for me. You can give the Lord a hand clap of praise. He deserves it. It's him. It's what he's done for us. I'm going to ask our worship team to get in place, and I'm just going to repeat something I've already said. I know this is simple, but I want you to hear it again. This is the only way. There is no part two. There's no second path of overcoming sins. This is the only way. There's no other way. And quite frankly, it does humble us at times. Those mornings that are more frequent than I'd like to admit, it's humbling. It's humbling to think that I stand right before God not because of anything I've done. No matter how hard I try. Wish there could just be one week, huh? Where it was like, wow, you get it perfectly this week. You nailed it. Nope. Doesn't matter how hard I try. And I'm telling you something, when you really fall in love with God and you get a hold of the things I'm telling you, you'll want to try. I, I, I want to please God as much today as any day in my life. But I have got to trust the word of God in this battle, in this good fight, the battle of the conscience. Because you know what? The enemy will never stop. He understands, as I, I want to regurgitate a few things here. He understands that our desire is to be right with God. 
He understands the principle that sins separate us from God. And so what he wants to do every time that you and I sin, he wants to jump on that shoulder and say, you're distant from God, you're distant from God, you're distant from God. I have to understand the way, brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's the devil, sometimes it's just us, our faulty thinking. And I've got to make the decision, I'm going to stop this madness. And I'm going to thank God for the blood. And I'll confess to God, God, you know what I did. And God, I thank you that the blood of Jesus cleanses me. And here's what I know, that I know, that I know, that I know, that right now, right now, I am right in your presence. Because the blood is atonement for all of my sins. Brothers and sisters, if we don't get this, we'll never go further. I've got to know how God deals with my sins. I've got to know what his answer is to the things I have done. His answer is the blood of Jesus.